Hello, my soul-seeking friends. It's Shanna. Thank you so much for listening to Sense of Soul Podcast. Enlightening conversations with like-minded souls from around the world, sharing their journey of finding their light within, turning pain into purpose, and awakening to their true sense of soul. If you like what you hear, show me some love and rate, like, and subscribe. And consider becoming a Sense of Soul Patreon member, where you will get ad-free episodes, monthly circles, and much more. Now go grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Hey guys, my voice is slowly clearing up after a long two weeks of laryngitis, but I welcome my voice back as I do my next guest, Rabbi Matthew Ponag. Rabbi Matthew is a spiritual counselor, a teacher, and author of the book Embodied Kabbalah, Jewish Mysticism for All People. I enjoyed my conversation so much with Rabbi Matthew and got so much insight that I wanted to have him on again. And I feel so fortunate that Rabbi Matthew has also become a Sense of Soul affiliate. If you want to uncover the mysteries of Kabbalah, you have an amazing opportunity to be mentored by Rabbi Matthew. If you listened to the prior episode we did in February, you know that he has a ton of wisdom to share. He is offering Sense of Soul listeners a special discount to take a deep and personal dive into the Kabbalah and the unfolding of your own personal journey. If you're interested, go to matthewponak.com backslash sense of soul to learn more and sign up. You can also find this link in the show notes or go to mysenseofsoul.com under the affiliates page. So today, please welcome once again, Rabbi Matthew to drash a little bit more with me. Hi, Shannon. Hey, nice to see you again. Yeah. I'm so excited. You know, this is like the first time I've ever had anybody on this quick like this. Oh, well, what an honor. Our listeners are going to be like, oh, you must be super special, which you are. (laughs) And I actually got a lot of great feedback from our episode. Wonderful. It's good to be back. How's the book launch going? Good. Very nice. Yeah. And I've just announced a retreat that's happening in September. It's it's really exciting. So lots of good things. And, you know, the, the work goes on. You know, I was thinking about this this morning after I did see that you released a retreat. It's so interesting to me that it's taken this long for people to awaken to this work. Hmm you know, not just this work, just awaken to a lot of things. And can you say more about what do you mean taking this long? Well, when I think about like how long it took for the Nagamati to be found, or this has been around, you know, since the 13th century or whatever, but like, it's just now coming into people's consciousness, right? People are just now yeah. able to get it. Maybe it's because of technology, you know, I guess that's a double-edged sword technology. Yeah, there's a lot of things, but I think a big part of it is the information age. I will say as much as there are people all over the world who are encountering Jewish mysticism for the first time, people in the Jewish world in the last couple of generations have encountered Buddhism for the first time and yoga. And it's, it is a time of great sharing and these relationships that are being built there have been times like this in the past, but that was more like 
in the Jewish world in Spain in the 1300s, right? You had yes. a period of time where or 1200s people are sharing. It's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Like that was the sharing happening. And now it's global. These moments are precious and they, at least, you know, historically don't tend to last forever, you know? Yeah. Because things change. It is on some level astounding that people are just encountering some of these things. And on the other hand, there's a, I almost feel a sense of urgency when we can do this because there's no guarantees how long this will be going on for. And it's moments like these are really precious in, in human history. Yeah, I feel like it is a very special time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about where religious freedom happened for a people. I think about the witch trials, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. or the Holocaust and after that, yeah. Just a lot of, it's it's very interesting because people are able to be seekers. Like, I think that's primal in us to seek, right? To seek source, God or whatever everybody calls it. Yeah, meaning there is a certain depth to humanity, which I is not always, uh, let's say, instilled into our children. <laughs> Actually had many conversations and I've referenced you many times with a friend of mine and a few friends of mine in saying that, because this is the one thing I took from our past episode was mm-hmm. that you can still have like the family life and be busy and doing the things and still be spiritual, still you know, as a family with your friends, your community, still participate and celebrate your traditions and your spiritual life. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It is possible and it can be a fine art, but it is, I think, more the norm than the exception in a lot of traditional cultures. And really, a lot of us forgot about yes. spirits in general. And so part of the reclaiming on some level has to happen on an individual level. Individuals leaving their families or their communities in that sense, in the values perhaps are moving towards something new, but there's another step in our reclaiming of our wisdom, you know, in our wisdom traditions. And then the integration into the family life that, yeah, the seekers that they're very important. People need to go out because we haven't figured it all out and we've forgotten things and we're re-remembering and all of that. And there is a way in which the integration deepens when we bring it back home, when we can have the next generations having this part of daily existence. And yeah, that I see it kind of part of this unfolding. Yeah. And I think I shared with you quite a bit. And I think I was in a place where I was very angry that day about my religion, but you know, there's of course growing up and leaving the nest and, and a lot of us right now are currently faced with also leaving our religion. And which is a sad thing. I always think back to what Thich Nhat Hanh said in, I don't know if you ever read that book, Living Buddha, Living Christ. He wasn't trying to change anyone's religion. He said, in fact, he thought it would be a travesty for one to lose their religion. And actually, that's really been hitting me hard lately in the fact that I need to find peace with that and kind of let go of the anger of it. I think that's all part of the process too. The One of my favorite teachers, Jewish mystics from the last hundred years, Rav Cook says, he basically says atheism is from God. <laughs> and he says it arises in humanity to deconstruct false notions of God. And he sees it as a divine force. And to, to leave one's religion or to have anger towards it, in that perspective is actually about 
breaking down what isn't true or what isn't serving humanity. But that's not the end of the story in Rav Cook's view, or in my view, it's actually so that something else can be reestablished and built. So, and the other piece that comes to mind when you say that is, so in the Jewish culture, people can leave the belief system or the practices, but they're still Jewish, if you know what I'm saying. It's almost, it's an ethnicity. And and I think about all the people I know in, who are here in Canada and they say, well, I don't have a religion. And I say, well, what do you do in December? They're like, well, we, we do Christmas. And it's like, okay, well, that's a secularized kind of post-Christian form, but it sounds like you've taken what's still meaningful for you and left the rest. And to me, that's fine. As a Jew, I do that all the time. And I know a lot of people, that's kind of a standard. It's, you know, we're a tribe, we're a culture, and we don't have to be not Jewish anymore just because we don't believe in stuff or we don't practice everything. But there's ways in which it can still be meaningful, I think, in our lives. I kind of align with Thich Nhat Hanh on that. I haven't read that book in particular, but I really revered him as a teacher when he was alive. And yes. he had offered so many gifts for humanity. And there is something about connecting with our ancestry. And last time you and I talked about your Jewish ancestry and yeah. as well. And, and But if people, I hope for people, for you and for others, that they can find those parts of their own lineages that they do connect with and that they can feel the permission to take what they need and leave the rest and build towards something that is meaningful for right now and for the future. Yeah. Do you know how many people are ignorant to the fact that Jewish actually is a nationality? Because uh, I remember telling I don't know, a few people and them going, how, wh what do you mean you have Jewish? And I was like, well, it's not just a religion, people. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, learning about other people's cultures and, and just, you know, we've only been told what our systems want us to know. And so going out of that box a little bit and discovering maybe true history, even through your ancestry, will actually give you more of a truth. Oh, yeah. I really like a Vietnamese soup pho. And there's a place mm, yeah. close to uh, where I work where they serve that. And I, I speak to someone there sometimes. He's when a manager or something. And he told me recently that he's an atheist and he didn't know I was a rabbi. It was sort of I knew him as a customer. Yeah. And, and he says, well, you know, we can get along. You know, even though I'm an atheist and you're religious and I, I sort of, I think I said something to him, like, you know, when a lot of people say they don't like religion, they just assume that every religion is the same. And mm -hmm. I often feel like a lot of people who have a, let's say a blanket statement about how religion is bad. They probably mean the religion that they were raised with. And they've assumed that it's all just that. And I, I was saying most Jews I know who I grew up with don't have a particularly strong belief in God themselves. And it's really about how you live in the world and not what you believe in my culture. So the idea that someone can be an excellent Jew, an excellent <laughs> practitioner of Jewish wisdom and be an atheist, that yeah. by and large, those two things, they're not particularly related, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. it's ways in which... Uh, Judaism doesn't fit the mold uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, right? So yeah, you can you can have it ethnically, you know, or genetically, and and not have been raised with it. it. It's there's many categories. The whole idea of religion is is a troublesome one to define. It is, but you know, when I think about the study of the Zohar and the Kabbalah, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe this is just how I've received it. I feel like it's like one of those teachings that is for all mankind, for all humans. And it's, it's a journey. And I don't know if anyone could ever like fully even understand it because it's a, a lie. 
in some way. It's like one of those things, have you ever like read a book? Actually, you know what book does that to me? The Alchemist does this to me. You know, it's like one of those things where you read it and it means so much to you. You have this profound experience with this book. And then the next time you read it, it's a totally different experience. And <laughs> that, that is something new. That you're basically summing up the Jewish understanding of Torah more broadly yeah. when you say that. Torah study, the whole Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, right, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, are read on a cycle every year in synagogue. And you finish it and then you start it again. And people have the experience of, finding new insights every time they go through it. There's an old saying, turn it and turn it again, because everything is in it. So it is ever unfolding. And the Kabbalists who wrote things like the Zohar, they were people who studied Torah, the literal Hebrew Bible, but also all of the prior teachings. So Kabbalah is like the latest expression in their world in the Middle Ages of that older tradition. But yes, exactly. It is ever unfolding. And the idea, even there's a teaching that I love, what I was one of the first things I ever heard as a teenager about this kind of study. The first letter in the whole Torah, right? What's translated in English in the word in the beginning. It's one word in Hebrew, it's bereshit. And the first letter of the whole Torah is the letter bet, which is the second letter of the alphabet. So it'd be like the greatest book in English starting with letter B instead of A. And you know, in the Torah study mindset, they look for meaning and all of those things. And the one of the explanations is, because you can read the whole thing and you don't even know A, you don't even know Aleph, right? That like uh -huh. it is ever unfolding and there's always more. And so that's absolutely a core principle of both the study and maybe this is a bit more, I don't know, shocking to some, but that's the idea of the spiritual realization path too, is that we're uh -huh. here in our bodies. We, we, there's always more work to do. There's no permanent stage of ultimate realization, that we can experience in moments of Shabbat, right? When we're cultivating that joy and rest and celebration of all there is. But guess what? The world's not whole yet and neither are we. So mm -hmm. there's the idea of being a permanently perfected, realized, enlightened master is not very common in the Jewish system either. And it's like that study of Kabbalah. It's just infinitely unfolding like our minds. Okay. Yeah, I see that. It's And I like that kind of stuff. So like I seek that kind of stuff. Some people that like breaks their brain, but I've always oh, loved yeah. mystery, right? Just, I, and again, I feel like it, it's kind of primal in me. And I think in, it should be in most humans, but we're so busy that we just forget that this needs to be part of our lives as well. We have built, you know, we, the broadest sense have built this society or this world that is really, as much as it has flaws, it's very good at instilling people with a sense of independence and freedom. And yeah, there are definite limits to people's opportunities, but there's also a lot of opportunities we have as a society compared to a lot of our ancestors, right? There's real, there's things that we've done very effectively and we haven't built a world that is particularly fostering a sense of a seeking of wisdom in that deeper way that our universities, which are really places that could be that are primarily places that are seeking, let's say, factual knowledge and objective assessment and all those kinds of things which are useful, but they're not, in my opinion, the end of where they could be. And there've actually been places that often exclude the seeking of wisdom because it could get dangerous or what happens if there's the wrong opinions that get forwarded in class and those kinds of things. So we all have that potential, but we haven't developed a society right now, which is really, it's not all about that. It's actually about other things. <laughs> It's more about yeah. at the end of the day, 
people growing up, they care so deeply about their job. What will their title be and how big will their house be? Which, look, it's important to have some degree of financial stability for well-being. That's always been true, right? We need a certain level, but we don't identify ourselves by our wisdom or our capacity to be aware or peaceful or kind as much as that's, those are all kind of secondary. (laughs) When you were talking, I kept hearing in my head heresy, right? Which means choice. And really, is that what heresy means in English? That's so interesting. Uh Choice. Are you serious? They took away choice, the choice. And I also feel with that went away with your voice, freedom, when you don't have a choice to mm-hmm. think for yourself for so long. And so people are still scared of that. You know, they're still like in our DNA, that fear of being able to choose. And so, yeah, there are ways in which our, let's say, look, the American constitution is an expression of a great empowerment of individuality and, and freedoms. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, I mean it, I don't, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a yeah. dual citizen at this yeah. point. And I, you know what I mean? I'm Canadian, yeah. but I'm also American. And I, I don't want to look, it's very easy to get into a place of, let's say cynicism around certain elements of America, whatever. There's all, yeah. there's no shortage of that. And what I really meant was it's not a finished product, but there are ways in which let's say democracy in the West in the last few hundred years really are an expression of an empowerment of people to make choices, right? Mm -hmm. And there's more work to do there because we can swap out, let's say, a rigid view of the Bible for then what's the next value system we're going to view rigidly, right? What's what's the next way that we're going to become fundamentalists or non-thinkers? One of the things that I really do value about my own lineage It's not always, uh, let's say, embodied, but there is a really strong ethic for a long time of dialogue and discussion and conversation. The idea that any one person has the final say on how to interpret reality or how to interpret the Bible or how to interpret wisdom is our foundational texts of really rabbinic Judaism, which is for all intents and purposes what Judaism is. Last 2000 years, it's existed, the rabbi lineage. Uh, It basically says... When two rabbis argue and disagree, well, both of these are the words of the living God, (laughs) meaning there's sacred scripture and two individuals, no wise people, but individuals, humans have two completely divergent views on what that's about. And it says both are true simultaneously. Yeah, that is how today, definitely, and for a long, long time, the students of the wise, the students of the rabbis and all of that, who themselves are called students of the wise, that the art is learning a little bit and then how do you see it and let's hit you against someone there's an argumentation there there's a debate but it's really kind of sharpening the intellect vis-a-vis one another and it's it is an expression of freedom freedom to think like i said when i read the alchemist two different you know 10 years apart i was in a different place so it's wherever you're at that you're going to receive what you're supposed to yeah so of course perception would be different right that in a sense that's when the kind of text becomes like a tarot deck yeah or like an omen or it's an oracle right there's it's a very intuitive process in fact there's a lot of divination involved in reading text in that way and the receiver it's they're always going to be informed by who they are and their life experience the depth of one's teachings in that sense is really a reflection of who they are 
and how much spiritual experience and depth and self-awareness they've reached in combination with what they might know in that more intellectual sense. And so the teachers that I followed with the most passion in the Jewish world are ones who can combine that depth of study of the self. Yeah, that's where for myself, when I think about who we are today, right, this self, me today in 2023 and you, just like the constitution, if you go and look at, I mean, we've evolved from that place. Okay. So it has to be amended, right? Right. Now, when I look at some of the things say in the old Testament and in, you know, cause I'm not really familiar with the Torah, but I assume it's the general same as the old Testament. Oh, it's the first section I, of it. First of all, there's many translations, but just in yeah. Greek, Hebrew Bible, I wish I knew the number. It's, it's I think, 20, 30 something books yeah. in the whole Hebrew Bible. The first five books are called the Torah. And there's different translations, of course. But if you've read yeah. from Genesis to Deuteronomy, you've read the Torah. Well, you know, it's interesting, though, when I and I know you listened to the episode when I had Rabbi Rosenberg and yes. he had said that, you know, his stories were told differently a little bit. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You know, again, perception, right? And how we've been taught and how we see it. But I mean, just if you're reading the text and there's no commentary or teaching to it, if you're just reading the text, some of that stuff is really not for today. I mean, we live and we've evolved from that. Mm-hmm. And I heard you say earlier that you felt like the Zohar and the Kabbalah is more of a evolved, did I hear that right? More evolved version of the Torah. I would say if we're using the metaphor of the American Constitution, instead of amending it, what the wisdom tradition traditionally in mm-hmm. Judaism has done is reinterpret it and sometimes mm-hmm. radically. Torah is both these five books, but also Torah in the broadest sense, it's used how the word Dharma is used in Buddhism. It means the whole wisdom lineage. It means everyone has Torah within them and that all of our ancestors have written books that today are considered Torah because mm-hmm. they're part of the wisdom lineage. So it's both, I guess, in a sense, capital T Torah or that is that those five books. And then the lowercase T is just the evolving wisdom tradition. So Kabbalah, I don't, I hesitate to put a hierarchy on it. If you know what I'm saying, like evolve, yeah, right. be more advanced and like, look, okay, personally, right. I, I love Kabbalah, obviously. And I see it as a very special There's a part of me, for whatever reason, I could maybe feel into this a bit more, but there's a way in which evolved doesn't quite capture it. I Because there is a sense in which it is more evolved. Yes, it was for a a later time, closer to our day, more, let's say, explicitly mystical than a lot of elements of the Torah. And, And I also feel like Torah itself is meant to evolve. And so Kabbalah really is just a natural expression of that lineage, just like the Talmud is a natural expression, just like today's unfolding Jewish spirituality is a natural expression. So it's all Torah as well. And something might feel advanced for its era, but it may also be unadvanced for another culture at the same time that there's, it's, there's an evolving, a growing outward, but there's also just a meandering and a traveling. It's not just a spiral, let's say it's more like a Honestly, it's like a slinky that goes in various directions and it's always kind of moving forward, but it's not necessarily better or worse, depending on the era, though I would say in many ways, I have more personal engagement reading the Zohar than reading some of the other texts, including some literal reads of the Torah. I mean, I feel like just the understanding is more advanced now, maybe 
like even we were we started the conversation saying that you know people are more open they're less programmed right now seems like it I well some people are it's so interesting it just in my world I'm always in sense of soul world I'm talking to all these very conscious enlightened people right I'm trying to think of what my hesitancy here is around this I, I agree with much of what you're saying and yeah there's a way in which I hope that our human species is evolving and I know that sometimes it's really this sort of two steps forward, one step back kind of yeah. thing. And part of studying ancient sources, even if we completely disagree with them, even if they are objectively wrong, I would say, right? Like the, the oh. way that the Torah in the book of Leviticus talks about gay men is not something I at all agree with. Some of the violence in there, like, genocide. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to be honest, they're all they're all hot topics. They're all very right, difficult. Yeah. But I can ask myself, one, it's not good to hide from one's own past. I really, you know what I mean. We all, it's very humbling to know that as much as, let's say, in Canada here, I'm really a strong advocate for reconciliation between Indigenous communities and Canadians. And actually part of a embodied path is relating to our own primal instincts, not letting well, them overrun us, but coming to a place where we can actually feel them and be aware of them. And guess what? There's a whole lot of projection that happens. So I guess I don't have like an answer, but I, first of all, I'll agree with you. There's a lot of, I don't know, nasty stuff written in ancient documents and you'll find it in every tradition, but the Kabbalists of the Zohar weren't necessarily speaking of that other stuff like I just did. Right. Mm -hmm. They might be sometimes they reinterpret or sometimes they agree with elements of it. And it's not they weren't all kind of awakened you know, guru types yeah. either. There's there's ways in which the Zohar reinforces some of that stuff. But there's a new Kabbalah. Right. And there's there it evolves from there. But I, it all connects back to the nature of Torah itself, which is to reveal itself anew in each era. Okay. I love that. Just right there. That was it. Because, you know, as much as I'm saying as, as we've evolved and, and can go to this higher wisdom, I also feel that we need to embrace some of our ancestors' traditions, say like with holistic healing and stuff. They did that for generations and generations because it worked. And then all of a sudden we gave up our power and just handed it over to big pharma and all this and, and lost our power in, you know, the capability that we are powerful enough to maybe not heal an arm ripped off, but maybe sit with our pain a little bit. And I know a lot of times for myself, if I just meditate and breathe light into wherever the pain is, a lot of times it goes away. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. There are ways in which we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater to kind of go back to an earlier theme today, just the prophets and how they lived and the kind of the ways that they had deep insight and, and how that empowered them to lead and, and help and heal in some yes. cases. The other thing too, which I have an eye for, whether it's the Hebrew Bible or the rabbinic teachings when Kabbalah came on the scene, there was a ton of already a ton of rabbinic writings. I mean, like way more in those writings than in the whole Hebrew Bible. And it's this massive system of law and discussion and wisdom and, and a mixture of the good, the bad and the ugly. Honestly, like a lot of ancient texts, we can look at any of that and say, if there's a prohibition on something, it probably means that on a grassroots level, people were doing it. <laughs> And so if someone prohibits a practice that today yes. we have liberated, actually, yeah. it means that people were doing it. And if they weren't in power, they couldn't promote it. But that's actually a clue. If we don't have writings from the sort of everyday ancestors 
but mm -hmm. there's a prohibition there. Yeah, Actually, you're right. It means that's a clue into, wow, there were some basically pagan witch practices, Wiccan type stuff that our mm -hmm. female ancestors were doing in the Jewish lineage that the rabbis were prohibiting and they described these rituals. So mm -hmm. if you want to know what a 12th century Spanish or Egyptian Jewish Wicca practice looked like, guess what? It is described in details in the writings of Maimonides, who was prohibiting it. But he right. was saying it because it was being done. And so right. there's actually ways of looking at those things which are prohibited and knowing what, on some level, mm -hmm. what everyday people were doing. That's so true. The laws are created usually because they were having an issue. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also in the original language and maybe in some good translations, the Hebrew Bible is, is not a monotheistic text. Mm -hmm. And that can also quite be quite shocking to people to hear because, oh, monotheism, you know, Bible, that is not the thing. Well, if you look, for example, when the Israelites are freed from Egypt and they're singing this celebratory song after they cross the Sea of Reeds, right? Otherwise translated as the Red Sea, it was, it's the Sea of Reeds. They erupt into song and they say, who is like you, God, among the gods? Who is like you? And that's just yes, one of right. many examples that they, they recognize and the authors of the Torah, certainly those sections recognized that there are other gods out there, but they believed that yod heh vav right? The sort of ineffable, the infinite was, or the Lord, if you will, was the God of the Israelites and the best God, perhaps, or you know what I mean? But right. yeah. they acknowledge that there were other powers out there. Like there's ways in which right. translations or just interpretations cloud us mm -hmm. from the actual reality. I mean- in the Garden of Eden, God is walking in the Garden of Eden and looking for Adam and Eve because he can't find them. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a bit more pagan? You know what I mean? Like the God who has a body who's walking around the garden that can't find the humans because God is not all-knowing in that particular moment. It's very interesting, especially if you read it. You know what I mean? Actually read it. You know, I found it very interesting recently. I read an article that <laughs> this is actually kind of funny, but the Pope decided he was going to go down to the sacred archives and he was going to share with everybody now what the true name of God is for the first time. This was like only a few years ago for the first time. Huh. And so he did. And he brought out, and it was a very old text. It was from like, I want to say like 70 something AD, like really old text. So he brings it out and he shares, he said before, you know, only the Pope's knew the true name of God. And he shared it was Jyote Vate. But uh -huh. I mean, really? like. Huh. <laughs> and but, did you pronounce it? Um, That, I don't know, because I read it. So I don't yeah. know. I'm just, I'm, but, I'm curious, because that's the, the pronunciation yeah, like is Yahweh what sort of the legends or... are. There's a pretty decent historical argument to say that there never was a pronunciation, that those letters were chosen specifically because they represented no sound. Oh. They were sort of, yeah, like marker letters. But there are other traditions, certainly within the, you know, Jewish writings of, of antiquity that say, you know, the high priest which is what the Pope sort of took a lot of inspiration from, right? The ancient Israelite high priest and the Jewish high priest of Judea, they were pronouncing it once a year in the inner sanctum of the temple. And it was known. So I'm curious if there was a pronunciation. Yeah. So in Hebrew, there's so many names of God that are translated in a more uniform way sometimes and in a lot of translations, right? Like there's many names that are translated God, many names that are translated the yeah. Lord, but there's, there's dozens but that was a secret. <laughs> right. He felt he wasn't the only one who should know it. Recently, I had 
come across this woman. Um, her name is Elizabeth Schrader, and she's a Bible scholar. She found a very big, like, discovery in the book of John. And it basically makes Mary Magdalene not from Magdala, but Mary of Bethany, which changes everything. And she actually went before all the churches, and some churches are considering changing. I also want to point out that, you know, in the Christian religion, the Bible ends right there. But in the Jewish tradition, God never stops speaking to you. This is something that rabbis and scholars continue to write. So that's why you still have books and mm, you still have scripture and text. You know, what happened is like after the New Testament just ended, God just doesn't talk to us anymore. We don't write about him. You know what I mean? I, yeah. To be honest, I don't know enough about, let's say like Catholic theology. So there's there's a few things I want to share. One of them is that just to go back just for a moment and kind of give a little bit more clarity, I will never stop wanting to probe the depths of both the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, and the interpretations. But there is very little, if any, part of me that wants to you know what I mean? I'm not trying to uphold the literal read of it whatsoever, right. but the interpretive tradition, yeah. I'll never read the end of. Even if I could read all day, every day for the rest of my life, the saying, the teachings of the rabbis, which interpret the Torah, I will never get literally to the end of that. It's impossible for me to study all of it, including Kabbalah, all the mysticism, but also the more, let's say, I don't know, pragmatic, legalistic, like all those takes, it's beyond me. But I don't want to say that I want to uphold any kind of literal reading, especially of the really I don't know, problematic, nastier, you know, outdated, yeah, outmoded, but the interpretive really tradition. Yes. Yeah. And so there is a story in the Talmud, which again, this sort of the real like kind of, it's in a sense, the Bible of the rabbinic tradition. In many ways, it mirrors the significance of the New Testament in Judaism, because it, instead of being a new covenant, what it is, is a drastic rereading of the Bible. And it really paves the way for what Judaism is in the subsequent era. It was finalized, so to speak, 1500 years ago, give or take. But in a real sense, it was never finalized, right? Like it all it all keeps going. But there's like the Talmud itself. I'm not writing sections of the Talmud. I'm writing other things, right? Um, but it, it all yeah. it's part of that discussion lineage of the rabbis. In the Talmud, there's a story about the ancient, I think it was the priests, the Kohanim in the old temple that wanted to get rid of the desire for idol worship. The legend goes that they did some kind of magic or something and they drew forth from the inner sanctum of the temple, this fiery lion cub, which came out and they trapped it in some way. And at that moment, simultaneously, the desire for idol worship ceased in the world. That's there. Basically, on some level, that legend comes from a time of like, why aren't people bowing down to idols or statues like they used to? And there's a whole thing about how to interpret that. But simultaneously, idol worship ceases, and so does prophecy. That oh. There was a connection that the author of that story drew between the desire to kind of have this really, I don't know, visceral connection to, let's say, nature or trees in the sense of or stars of worshiping them and the ability mm. to be a prophet in that biblical sense. And then so they say, OK, we're, we can we can handle that, but we want to get rid of adultery. We want people to stop cheating on each other and their spouses. And so they did some other incantation and, and adultery ceases. But then they realized that all the animals in the world are stopping having babies <laughs> because in, think about that as a metaphor. And so they like they put it back. They're like, OK, we'll, we'll take adultery. We want babies on the planet. And so basically they're comparing the sexual urge, broadly speaking, 
to the urge for like visceral connection and that prophecy is like procreation on that fundamental level, right? The sexual urge with God, but it's so strong. It also leads people to go elsewhere to cheat on God, right? Those are intimately connected. So this is all to say rabbis, any Jewish practitioner can forward the Torah lineage, right? The insights, but we differentiate that. And maybe it's a false differentiation, but classically that's different than what a prophet would do, right? And I, I believe there's a shamanic prophetic capability within every person. And I see a lot of prophetic in a more, let's say formal sense, uh, there's a lot of messages within, you know, classic Judaism that say, well, the prophetic era has ended. Thank you for sharing that story because it made sense. But I have always wondered that. Like, did God just stop talking to us? According, you know, did he just stop working through man or woman to write books, you know, on his behalf? Like what happened? Which God, I think, did work with you, you know, to sure. put this together. Yes. Also, right. In, in you know, ways, but, right. Uh, yes. But I do feel like, and actually, I really like your book. By the way, I really do. I'm so glad last time I didn't actually have it in my hand. I didn't get to read it. And it's a great study. I would absolutely recommend this to anybody who wants to learn about Kabbalah because it helps you understand it, helps you study it. It gives you, I mean, great questions to kind of ponder on commentary. So this is like where I was going. Here we have these, this old wisdom. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now we are more advanced in maybe our world technology. So now maybe we can evolve with the commentary. Like this is what it means for man today, right? This is how we can use this practice in our lives today. This is how we can be embodied in Kabbalah today. For sure. Yeah. It it is the commentary method, essentially, that Mm -hmm. in the same way that, right, in my book, the primary sources are in the center. And then there's commentary all around, which explains it, expands on it, offers comparison to other things. That is what the Jewish tradition has been since the rabbis came on the scene. (laughs) And well, I could show you on camera right now, but people listening wouldn't see it. But if you look, open up a page of Talmud, which I have behind me. Okay, so one more time. I know you just explained where it came from, but it was after the Torah. It was you said it was finalized in the 1500s. Is it a bunch of authors, or is it just one? Oh yeah. Oh oh yeah. That's much like yours. Yes. Yes, In the center of the page. Okay. Essentially, there's hundreds of rabbis in here. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. First rabbis, and what they're doing is commenting on each other over the course of about 600 years. And it was a multi-generational project that started off probably orally and was eventually written down. And it's building on each other. It's quoting earlier rabbis, but they're all going back to the Bible and the Torah. And essentially, yeah, hundreds of rabbis over the course of many generations, which are building a new structure. This happened after the temple was destroyed. And the, which was the central, it was, it was a place-based religion. Today we think about Judaism as a maybe holiday-based religion or a customs-based religion, but it's a diaspora. We've, we've, well, we've kind of reclaimed it in the last 75 years, uh, but there's a way in which Judaism still is, it's not based on place. There's no temple. There's no central offerings. We go to individual synagogues, but 
basically the rabbis recreated what Judaism could be mm-hmm. when the temple was destroyed. And it became more about customs and prayers than about offerings into a particular place. And so it was a paradigm shift and that they took, actually the Talmud is taking earlier writings from other rabbis and commenting on those and then bringing in the Torah. And you'll find there's versions of the Torah where you have like a single verse and then the rest of the page is commentary. Basically it allows the original text to be preserved. And don't, there's a part of me that wants to rewrite the whole Torah, by the way, (laughs) I want to take out the bad parts. Right. But that's not been the way. And so to preserve wisdom across generations in Judaism, it's done essentially by keeping it would be like taking the American Constitution in its original form and instead of making amendments, making commentary. But the commentary can be binding. Right. We don't need to change how it started in that sense. Like it is the is the central document of this thousands of year old lineage. Because paradigms do change. That story about why prophecy ends, in a way, articulating a paradigm shift, like at the end of the Lord of the Rings, when everyone leaves Middle Earth, mm-hmm. there all of the magical beings are going. And it's this is the age of man. They have this great accomplishment, but something shifts on a fundamental level. And that's like what our world has done. That yes. a lot of the magic has left. And it's not like it's gone permanently. But there's a way in which stories like that about the end of prophecy or in our age, the end of meaning on some level, the end of magic in the world. A lot of people feel that in our era, but it can be reanimated and brought back again. And I think in many ways, that's the project that Embodied Kabbalah is. It's like a reanimation, a re-resurrection, but a re-enchantment of our world is what I think a lot of mystical teachings are pointing at right now. Or a discovery of just finding it within that Absolutely, we have yes. it within, right? Absolutely. That before maybe it was outside of us and maybe we hadn't evolved to the place where now, you know, everyone can find it within. Oh, for sure. Yes. And yeah. And I, I guess on in, there is a way in which I was speaking where I was kind of thinking about the world outside. And yes, that the re-enchantment, it happens in both planes and in within us, outside of us, and also community. It can happen between us. Right. Uh, When practitioners meet, there's a way in which the space right in those moments can be animated with that magic. And like one of the most beautiful things people can experience are shared spiritual experiences where there's a presence. Right. That's the word Shekhinah in Hebrew means presence, that presence can arise and arrive actually between us in the space. I love in the book of Thomas, one of the Gnostic Gospels, it says the kingdom is inside of you and outside of you. And when you find it within, then you are known. And that always stuck out to me. Of course, you know, that's in the Gnostic Gospels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It didn't make it in there. It, <laughs> it didn't, didn't make, make it into it the in critical there. edition of the uh, <laughs> the Council of Nicaea. Yes. Didn't, didn't make the cut for sure. So there's a few things that when I, I listened to our episode a few times, actually, I liked it. You know, 22 has always been a number that stuck out to me. Can you tell me the significance of 22 since everybody that's listening probably knows that that's like my number? <laughs> What's wow. 22? Why 22? So in the same way you were describing the unfolding nature of Kabbalah and how it's an infinite study. 22 is a lot of things. Yeah. And so the first thing that came to mind is the two letters to like, if each Hebrew letter is a number, 
you can imagine that different words can like different numbers can be spelled differently. Yes. In English, the number six, let's say, could be could be the letter F. It's the sixth letter in the alphabet, but let's say it could also be ABC. You know what I mean? Because that's one plus two plus three. So you can add up different letters to equal different numbers. So there's a most, I guess, direct way of spelling it. And that would be the number, the letter that equals 20 and the letter that equals two. And that is cuff is 20 and bet is two. And so if you were to turn that into a word, bet cuff is bach, which means, or bacha, which means within you. So you were just talking about within. within. Yeah. So mm-hmm. 22 means within, within you. Like literally, that is what the word means, uh, which I think is amazing. It is amazing. And how about this one? It, y- last time, the first thing we talked about just about was the letter Vav, right? Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like your last name and it's a meaningful letter for you. So if you were to spell the letter Vav, it would be spelt Vav Yud Vav. And that is six plus 10 plus six, which equals 22. No way. So one of the ways of spelling Vav equals your favorite number. Wow. That's that's (laughs) great. Okay. I'm aligning. (laughs) 22 also, I've heard, Mm, is in our DNA. And the one thing that is different in the 23rd part of the DNA is what distinguishes us as male and female. Absolutely. Yes. That's a good one. I mean, you're not going to find that in the Hebrew uh, numerological system, but it, uh, that's still, uh, yeah, no, 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 not even, but still, but I love incorporating things like that. The word in Hebrew is a drash. It means a sort of like a, where the intellect meets the soul. It's an interpretation, but it comes from that wellspring. And that's Mm -hmm. what ideally that's what rabbis do. That's what every Jewish practitioner, or I would say anyone who encounters Jewish wisdom and wants to can do. And you can incorporate things from genetics. You can incorporate things from outside of the Jewish canon. It's just the question of like, does it generate that wisdom and that insight? And the answer is yes, go for it. I drash Buddhism. You know what I mean? I'll drash Wicca, I'll drash all these kinds of things. As far as I'm concerned today, it's really about the cultivation of wisdom with what we access. But that method is deeply within the Jewish canon. So here's a good one, so to speak. The word tova, which so in Hebrew, every word is feminine or masculine, not every single word, but many words like a lot of languages. Right. In English, we don't have a particularly gendered language, but in Hebrew, you can have a masculine goodness or a feminine goodness. And the feminine goodness is the word tova, which tova, it's like, it's like goodness, but it's like, it just happens to be the feminine, you know, because if, if I was going to say, or, or even the word, the adjective good, like this male dog is good versus this female dog is good. I would use the masculine good for the, the male dog and the feminine. Anyway, okay. so tova, which is the feminine form of goodness or good as an adjective equals 22. It's interesting. I'm now here's here. So here's my drash of what's come up so far right? The interpretation is there's a sense of these 22, right? And the 23rd is chromosomal. And that is this differentiation between feminine and masculine, Wow. right? And so here's tova, which is a specifically feminine word, but the word within you, becha, because of the way that word appears, it can be depending on what vowels someone would put in there, could be bach or becha, which could be within you feminine or within you masculine. It has the dual nature of it. It is a, just the letters in and of themselves are non-gendered. So there's this whole interesting way in which there's a sort of gendered element and a non-gendered element, but it means feminine thus far, right? right? If you don't know what I'm saying, because tova is the feminine. And so I'll just add, 
I think this we'll add this last one, the word yachad, which means it's to be united, to come together, like union, oneness. I'm just even trying to think if there is a feminine version of this, I guess in some context that they would be, but it is a, it's like almost like a preposition, you know, it's like, uh, or maybe that's the wrong grammatical term, but I don't think it's often gendered. In any case, it equals 22, yachad, and it means together or oneness or unity. And it again has that sense of uh, a unification beyond gender. The Star of David as well. Because one time when I was researching the Bob, that popped up and I was like, what? And then it said, Oh, six pointed stars. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, you're right. Yes. And so, and you're saying, oh, it's a masculine and a feminine simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And there's a lot of Kabbalah is a fairly non binary. Uh, system as much as the different sephirotic elements the different divine manifestations are gendered in a lot of cases they also switch and so the divine feminine what's usually called the divine feminine it's really one of many sort of feminine archetypes within that system it's called the shekhinah and it's like kind of classically feminine but it's also king david (laughs) so king david becomes this representation of the feminine but it's also masculine in that case and now he's uniting with the upper divine masculine as well there's a great complexity there. And so that is all, well, they would, Kabbalists would say it's all one mystery. It's yeah, the unification. There's, exactly. There's a def, differentiation and a unification happening simultaneously. So I had also, I found this one to be great, that the Merkaba has 22 oh, triangles. Of course. How did I not? That is... Yeah, I almost want to like apologize. Right. And that's like the six-pointed star as in 3D, the Merkaba, right? Well, the yeah, Merkaba can mean different things in different contexts, but it's 22 letters. And it is, in that sense, this great completion number. It's crazy. Because from, yeah, Aleph to Tav, like from the beginning to the end, it's the whole thing. Like that's, yeah, ha, that's great. I can't believe it didn't even occur to me. Absolutely, 22. Yeah. And right, then 22... For the sephirot, is it the sephirot? So in the sephirot, there's 22 lines which connect the yeah. different 10, but each one of them is a Hebrew letter. Right. Uh, that's, it's yes. Like- I'm actually, right now I have a class I'm teaching on the 32 paths of wisdom. And that's the 22 letters plus the 10 sephirot in the sort of ancient writings. Those are the 22 paths of wisdom, but it's 22 plus 10. This is an example of why it's hard to do some of these interpretations without some knowledge of Hebrew, or at least without someone who is explaining the Hebrew, right? Uh, Because it doesn't make it into the translation. Right. So I, like in my book, I really tried to relay some of these kinds of interpretations, which aren't accessible otherwise. There's a word in Hebrew that doesn't exist in English because it's really a not needed. We have words in English like that too, like the word do. If I say, do you believe in this? In most languages, I would just say, you believe in this? Right. But the do, it's extra. And we have it and we say it, but we don't actually need it. And so Hebrew has words like that too. Except, of course, they're interpreted as meaningful, right? It's like, why is that word there? Well, it must mean something deep. And so the word is, it's just et. And it, it basically, it's used, what's, it announces the object of the sentence in some context. So basically, the, the first line of the whole Torah, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. In Hebrew, that would be in the beginning, God created at the heavens and the earth or okay. at the heavens and at the earth. And basically it's like, we don't need that in English, but what is et? Et is a two letter word that starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the second letter in that word, the final letter is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mm. And so 
the, one of the mystical interpretations is in the beginning, God creates the Hebrew alphabet, right? From the first letter to the last letter, right? That et is a symbol. That's the first thing God creates. And it might not have even been letters. It might've been the sounds, right? Kind of like the vocal, like the prequel C.S. Lewis wrote about the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the God figure, right? The, the line sings the world into being. Right. It's like a sonic creation. Yeah. These different yeah. letters are different sounds. And the mm -hmm. the infinite is singing or articulating with sound, like mantra yeah. almost. The world is created. So I that, believe that. And that's the that's whole perfect. alphabet symbolizes all of the sonic or just the energetic building blocks of all reality. So that's amazing. And that's 22. Yeah, just those two little letters, just <laughs> I agree with the frequency and vibration of the earth. That's how it was created. I believe that. So, but you know what, here's another crazy thing that I heard. I don't know where I heard this though, but it always stuck to me. And I started adding up all these things in my brain, put them somewhere. There was 22 major pyramids built hmm. and they, it was like a, I don't remember where it was. It was this guy and he was talking about his ancestors and it was like a story that was passed down. And I want to say he was Basque or something. It was, it was not anywhere, you know, near, you know, the Holy land. And he had said that it was passed down that they had made the 22 pyramids because it was going to make the Merkaba. And that would be the vehicle or something. And that's what they needed to do to be able to leave or, or go back home or whatever sure. it is. Yeah. So here's, here's an example. I was just thinking, I was like, oh, I wanted to return to the difference in the stories that I tell versus someone like Rabbi Rosenberg that you had on. And this is a good example. So I am very informed by archaeology and history, and I intermix that with my understanding of the traditional Jewish stories. Mm -hmm. So and I don't even know what Rabbi Rosenberg would say about this in particular, because Jewish people were not around like the Israelite tradition didn't exist when the pyramids were built. Right. Like there's a legend. Right. Some people even I was kind of right. raised on it on some level that the Jewish Israelites were involved in building pyramids. That wasn't the case. Pyramids were built before that. Mm -hmm. If there was an existence of what became Israelite Jewish wisdom, it, there's no evidence of it. Right. And so something a story like that. Yeah. It's an interesting story, but I put that in the realm of legend in the sense that it's unprovable. In the same way, the traditional Jewish Kabbalistic, let's say, view of where Kabbalah comes from, they would say it goes all the way back to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Mm -hmm. I would not say that. I would say Kabbalah, wherever it was first spoken of, does not appear on the scene until the Middle Ages, really. And there might be indications that, it, you know, you can trace it back a little bit further, but there's no evidence, let's say. That okay. Kabbalah was, would be in the Merkava in that sense, right? Would have been around at that time. And so I would put that in the realm of maybe, you know what I mean? But like for me, I, the stories that I am aware of, right? They don't articulate that message. And there are traditions within Judaism of Kabbalah being around in the biblical times, but no one in the Bible is talking about Sefirot. No one's talking yeah. about the tree of life in that way. It's all being, right. that Kabbalah is an interpretation. It's a drag. Yeah of the Torah in light of the tree of life cosmology. And it's a beautiful one. And it's so good. It makes me wonder how far back does this go? But right. in that way, I understand it as a, a new interpretation from that era, which is incredibly helpful and beautiful. But right. on some level, I don't need it to be biblical. I don't need it to be Moses, to be profound. Yeah. And I would never also, Shanna, take away that story for you if it's meaningful. Right. I'm just, I don't think there's a way of proving it. 
Right. Um, well, in terms maybe of the accuracy. if you look from the stars and you look down and saw them all and they all aligned. To, like, well, maybe, maybe, yes. It maybe could they be do. wonderful <laughs> and beautiful. And there is uh, a little bit of a history in starting in the Theosophical Society from the 1800s mm -hmm. of saying that Kabbalah was appropriated by the Jews. And that is, I would call, a form of anti-Semitism. Okay. And it was Madame Blavatsky who started Theosophical Society in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. She basically said the Jews uh, appropriated Kabbalah, and Kabbalah was very important in early theosophy. Yeah. And she said they appropriated it from the Greeks and the Egyptians. And, really? And there is zero evidence for that, right? And it is it, it's a way of stealing Kabbalah for her own purposes. And she was saying that she was teaching the true Kabbalah, but there, she wasn't. She was appropriating it from the Jewish lineage which version was she teaching do you know so her kabbalah was largely informed by christian kabbalah was and it like alistair kabbalah, crowley no was no it? alistair crowley was like after her so oh okay. alistair crowley was like a student or around the same time but basically theosophical kabbalah was largely drawn from christian kabbalah which had existed since the 1400s but was drawn from jewish kabbalah aka kabbalah right. and so right. she said Oh, no, no, no. We have the real deal here. The Jews have taken it and uh, basically really? corrupted it. And she somehow had access to the true Kabbalah, but she invented the story of it. There was okay. no, there's no evidence. Right. And so there's a certain element in which the Kabbalah, which comes from Egypt, which precedes Israelites, is there's a way in which there's a certain I don't know. It makes me a little nervous. <laughs> and and I'm sure you were unaware of everything I just said, but I just want to say that there's a way in which kind of tracing it through Jewish lineage to me is important because that's the only evidence we have. And so, but yeah, Aleister Crowley, which then used the 32 in his book, 777, he broke off from theosophy, but he was of that camp. And so his Kabbalah also was coming through the theosophical Christian Kabbalistic kind of filter. And some of that stuff I read and I love, some of it I don't, but just to say okay. the stories about it, not only do I have a different story, I disagree with their story. Okay, so I've studied both of them yeah. and I've read many of Helena Blavatsky. I really align with her on a lot of things. Alistair Crowley at first, I thought that I aligned with a bunch of his things mm -hmm. until I read one of his sermons on my mini series on Sophia. Suddenly I read this sermon and it was so dark and so bad I mean you know I was like oh my god what is this oh no you know it actually I think that I pretty much was already thinking that about Aleister Crowley it really was about a life of slave eye that I first really aligned with his stuff and then kind of was like oh my god I don't know so it's interesting I haven't felt that way about Helena Blavatsky yet. I really would like to look into that. And, and just to say, I'm not, I don't want to discourage people from reading and yeah. loving what they love, right? I would, yeah. I'm not dismissing teachers entirely. I personally yeah. have some caution around Aleister Crowley because of some of the, let's say, dark arts that he was promoting. And, and I was just talking about this with Torah. I take what I love and I leave the rest, yeah. right? And I think people right. should explore and be aware of some of those things. And so in this one instance, I don't know much of Madame Blavatsky. I really don't. Yeah. I know that the way that she portrayed Kabbalah was disingenuous. Yeah. Right. And, and it, I feel that there, I'm not someone who's quick to call it appropriation. Yeah. I really am not. I don't even like how much it's used that term, but in, if somebody takes something from another culture mm -hmm. and then makes a bunch of money off of it, and yeah. then doesn't give credit to that culture right. or, or, or shares oh. the spoils, right. so to speak. Yes. That to me is pretty classically appropriate. Right. And so yeah. that's all I was pointing to, but I, 
like if you love her teachings and writings, like I don't want to discourage. Oh that. no, it's not that I love. That I just, you know, she was a woman. You know, in in her time, that should you not know, have been doing the things that she was doing. <laughs> you know who I really admire. Speaking of women, actually, she wrote under a pseudonym was Dion Fortune, and she okay. writes about Kabbalah and she writes about Doctor Taverner. This sort of like under a pseudonym as well. This doctor she studied with who was doing like magical, mystical things. She knew about Kabbalah. She write, wrote the book Psychic Self Defense. And again, I think her history is a little off, perhaps, and she definitely changes Kabbalah when she describes it, in my experience, but these are profound teachers, and I've learned a lot from them, and and they were writing often in a world where there weren't a lot of Jews doing Kabbalah, like Kabbalah was in the modern era was kind of wiped away in outside of a few circles, and so the esophical Kabbalah helped kind of re-inspire some of the reawakening and and like a lot of it was academics. I have a blog article on my website where I get it, it's called the 12 types of Kabbalah, and I describe basically, I mean, I could have said the 20 types, but these are 12 and it ta- traces the ways in which these relate. So if you see Kabbalah with a C is Christian Kabbalah, Kabbalah with a Q is Theosophic Kabbalah and Kabbalah with a K is largely Jewish, but in these days it's changed. And so the Kabbalah center is a particular Jewish lineage from a particular teacher of the 20th century who wrote a book called the Sulam. There's a whole, but like that is one branch of Kabbalah today that went quite universal. And it is one articulation. That's one of the 12 types I talk about. It's sort of like a new formation in our era, but it is one articulation of the living tradition of Kabbalah. Just like new age Kabbalah is one articulation. Just like um, there's, but it's a living lineages and there's many different forms you'll find. And the most universal ones well, the most established, I'll say, I teach a universal form, but it's not an ashlag form. The ashlag is where the lineage of the Kabbalah center goes back to. I am more coming out of a combination of the Jewish academic, the liberal Jewish, and the, I'm quite influenced by the new age movement as well. Like that's kind of my subset, but there's anyways, there's different forms. And so the 12 types of Kabbalah, it's on, it's on my blog. There's ways of tracing the relationships, but yeah, with a Q is the theosophical version originally but okay people are everything's evolving from there yeah so you know some people i've heard that's the c cabal right where does cabal come from you know people have you ever seen the fall of cabal oh that's interesting and there's lots of interpretations that can come from false etymologies kabbalah which means like le cabel it means to receive that's where the word comes from a cabal means uh like a secret political movement and yeah. I hear that, and you know, now that we're on the topic, what comes up in my mind is the uh, fear of anti-Semitism. What comes up for me is just secret society. When you think about like Illuminati, cabal. Appropriation, anti-Semitism. These are things yeah. which are every Jewish person, I think today knows the experience. And it's sad. I didn't know it growing up really. And I, things are mm-hmm. changing and there's just whatever. I get messages and people harassing me online, you know, about my Judaism. And it's, it's, a, it's just an experience I know of. Wow. And so I become more maybe sensitive or in the, in the same way, like I had relatives that didn't make it out of Europe. They died in the Holocaust. Right. And that's, that's a, a very common story for Ashkenazi Jews. And so there's, you know what I mean? But I, I don't make it a central focus. Well, I think it is to be talked about if I have read and heard that the C is from the cabal word is from Kabbalah, which it's not. You know, to be honest, here we are. Here we are. And I just said those are etymologically not related. Certainly cabal doesn't come from the Hebrew originally, but there seems like a decent argument that it was derived. The word derived into, let's say, perhaps Latin or French 
from the Hebrew word, right? The Hebrew right. word lekabel, which means to receive or receiving tradition or receiving like divine insight becomes Kabbalah. And then someone outside of the Jewish world creates the word Kabbal mm -hmm. from that. I like, I, I would have to do more research to be honest. I might've yeah. mistaken, but it could be that that one was derived from the other, but Here's the reason why my why my anti-Semitic spidey sense was activated. It's because there is a very like hundreds, if not thousands, of years of anti-Jewish conspiracy theories about mm -hmm. Jews collectively secretly running things. Mm -hmm. And there's the book, The Protocol of the Elders of Zion. Like there's books that are made up. It's a lie. And for a friend of mine said. Well, if there's a Jewish conspiracy, I've never seen one nickel of it, right? Like there's no, like there's no, <laughs> there's no organization that has ever given me money that we've stolen from the world or, you know what I mean? It doesn't. Yeah. And, and so I hear a cabal as a secret group of people with political power and those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. You're and it's right. how it derived from the word Kabbalah, which is a Jewish mystical term. And wow. I, I, it's, there's a lot of resonance there. And that's right. why, that's why it came up for me. Now, I don't know, you know, how people use it or, you know what I mean? But there's right. tracing uh, the Illuminati, let's say in the negative mm -hmm. sense of the Illuminati who control things and all of that. Like, I wouldn't be shocked if one could trace that, I don't know, fear back to mm -hmm. people who have fear of Jewish practitioners in the world. And I, I don't know, but there's anyways, that to me, there, I see that linkage. And and even took some of their mysticism practices. <laughs> right, oh, right, no, those folks too. Yeah, 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 whoever the, I don't know, because Illuminati is used in different ways. It ranges from the enlightened who are the true teachers in our world, I've heard it used like that, to right. the people who are yeah. secretly controlling everything. Right, right. Right, and I, I don't know how that's, right? But you know what? I do feel like there's so many conspiracies and I, I've looked at them and a lot of times you'll get a little bit of truth, a little bit of truth and that gets you and then a bunch of propaganda, basically. Well, that's any good conspiracy, right? I mean, like if you're going to design a conspiracy, you have to base it on some little piece like of truth. People are very reticent to believe something that is completely, completely, you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you can yeah. even just yeah. imagine, like, instead of saying it, instead, if the Jewish conspiracy was, there are these people that you've never even heard of that don't actually exist that control things, right? Just say, like, there's people who control things and they happen to be this group you've heard about and are written in your foundational religious texts. You know what I mean? Wow. Like, then then you've already, oh, you've linked it to a group, right? And guess what? This group was somehow, you know, relating to the members of this group were relating to the Roman authorities, which led to this event of that's really important. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, just there's some real tangible quality which conspiracies need to be related to in order to be believed at all. And so, yeah, that's, it's just yeah. the nature of things. And I, you know, and, and just thinking, going back to like Elias Levi, I tell you what, I think everyone, even if, you know, they've never heard of him should like look at some of these, you know, bigger people that we've mentioned, like Alistair Crawley, Helena and all that, because it's very in interesting what I discovered with like even in the story of Baphomet right the horned devil that's like half like it's a um uh what's it called a transgender um hmm. horned god well what was interesting the he's the first person that ever put in print this drawing he made it's just basically to show dualism but what's interesting is that Arthur Waite, who did the tarot, used that for the devil card. Ah, right. Yes. 
so yeah, things can get kings can get taken. And if you have not heard of this individual, I think you really, I, I'm I'm very impressed, Shanna, with with how much you read uh, I, and like your sort of knowledge of these different figures in history. Uh, this guy is named Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, and he seems to have perhaps unwittingly created Christian Kabbalah. He lived in the 15th century in Italy. I believe his book was the first book ever to be universally banned by the Catholic Church. He was Christian, and he wrote a book called The 900 Theses. And he included Kabbalistic stuff because he learned Kabbalah from a rabbi, a like a rabbinic Kabbalist who taught him. This guy must have been somehow universal. I don't know much about the rabbi, but this guy yeah. created 900 Theses. I think he was one of these guys. He died pretty young, but... Giovanni Pico della Mirandola is attributed with creating Christian Kabbalah, even though he might not have thought of it like that, right? He was just right. one of, the, like a few of the writings, a few of these theses he produced within these 900, which were so radical and controversial that it was universally banned. And you just might really enjoy reading about him. I will. Yeah, basically he learned from a Kabbalist, a rabbi, and then created this whole spark which basically fueled itself and evolved over the years and eventually fed into theosophical kabbalah that's so interesting so you know i feel like i won't keep you forever i could keep you forever i literally could talk to you for hours but i feel like just the basis of this conversation has really been like you know you have to appreciate the old and but you do have you need commentary mm -hmm. you kind of need oh, yeah. today's commentary Right? Absolutely. I go to Catholic school sometimes and I, I give a talk, of, you know, for high really? school students. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I'm I I mean, like, and like, I, I believe in this and it, I've had a relationship there for a few years and it's like kind of I, almost community service. And I sometimes get the question of like, and it takes a brave child or a brave teenager to ask this, but why is the New Testament so about love and you have all this violence in the Hebrew Bible and God is vengeful and you know what I mean? And the answer is, the Hebrew Bible is massively reinterpreted by the Talmud. The Talmud's main name for God is the compassionate one. And in the same way that Jesus and the Gospels and, and Paul and all of that, they took this turn towards this loving God. And they really reinterpreted and also said there's a new kind of covenant around now. The rabbis did that by interpretation. So we can look at the Torah and say, I don't know, some version of wow and some version yeah. of really or even yuck right but and we can mm -hmm. say i'm going to reinterpret or i'm going to comment or whatever we can also understand that that commentary has been going on for thousands of years and in fact the later books of the bible reinterpret some of the earlier teachings sometimes people have been doing it forever and so yeah. yes right. looking at modern commentaries but also engaging with older ones too if we can find them and many of them are translated in english today and it's this great yep. unfolding and the last piece and it really relates into the embodiment stuff is that we should be drashing we should be interpreting our body and our sensations and our minds mm -hmm. that the same attitude towards the ancient texts that all reality is a text mm -hmm. all our bodies are a text if we feel something in our stomach that feels like pain guess what we can look a little closer we can investigate that and maybe we're going to find some deep truth there that didn't quite wow. know how to articulate itself the drash this interpretive the where the intellect meets the soul is also where awareness meets the body, the heart, where it meets nature and relationship, wow. where it meets society. The world is a text and we need to be interpreting it and adding our commentary because there's so much wisdom hidden underneath.
Okay. So guess what? Just this past week, I was reading a book and every time she spoke of, there's a lot of different archetypes that are connected to the dark mother, right? Kali Ma is one of them. Mary Magdalene. Oh, Kali Ma. Um, yeah, the yeah, Black yeah. Madonna. Lilith. Yes. Um, yes. Okay, well, these are all yeah. the dark mothers. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, guess what? As I'm reading it, for some reason, my mind just kept on seeing dark matter. Hmm. Well, dark matter is stellar energy. Matter is mother. Yes. Rooted. Yes. Oh, love and I'm that. Like, Do you know everything I've been studying scalar energy and Sophia? My whole mini series is about the two of them. And they just went full circle together. Everything. I was like the creatress, the dark mother. This is hidden, scalar energy and Tesla and everything I've gone through came full circle. And I was like, what in God's name just happened? It was amazing. So finally, my mini series can be finished. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I, that is that. Yeah. Reality. So everything you just said, though, too. I was Absolutely. like, Yes. Yes. So yes, wisdom is embedded in creation. It's everywhere. And our world is in many ways is just God's ability to hide really well. (laughs) Yes. And you know what? Without dark matter, we would be invisible. We wouldn't have a physical body. It is the plasma, the scalar energy in between every single cell. And they say in Kabbalah that if you could truly encounter true reality, you would disappear, right? You would cease to exist. If you can make contact with that antimatter, right? Or whatever, there's a way in which, yeah, there's, you would actually disappear. And and I have a tendency to interpret it metaphorically, but I also love the idea that the Kabbalists really meant that you would actually cease to exist. So crazy. Okay. I might need to just send me that. I am citing an untranslated text right now. But I can, uh, I can, I'll send you a little translation. Can you? And the, the one, sick. and the one, I have to add this, just Lilith is right now, including in the Jewish world, situating herself within this great kind of feminist empowerment, mother, figure. Yes, I love that. And the older interpretations, where the first stories of the legends of Lilith, you could argue that it was all just patriarchalized you know but the oldest stories of her she was she was a demoness she was not a goddess mother like kali and i love the new way that it's the direction that it's going i'm totally supportive of that and in the same way as a very historically oriented person the oldest teachings of lilith she was like scary she was robbing babies from the cradle she was an she was in the zohar if you read the zohar on lilith they're not talking about her as the divine feminine they're talking about her as the demon demonic the dark mother yeah, and I, I love okay. how you're how you're putting that. Yes, she absolutely well, the tree of life also has a flip side, and the Shekhinah has dark Shekhinah. She's dark Shekhinah in the Zohar, at least in the oh. sections I've seen. The demonic version of the divine presence. Okay. In everyone can be refined through their interaction with the demonic, but I know Kali has these major old liberation qualities to her, just like Mary and all of those things. And just yeah. I, I want right. to just nuance that a little bit. She was seen as a demonic figure who is being reclaimed and liberated today. I had a dream about a Lilith like a few weeks and I haven't shared this yet with, I mean, I've shared it with some other scholars uh, just by email because I didn't know anything of Lilith. So I had this crazy dream. It was so, I woke up and I wrote it all out. I forced myself because I knew it just had one of those feelings that it was an important dream. 
So I forced myself and it was, I was at a wedding and I had these men bringing me gifts and one of them, I just didn't trust. So then like the next thing I remember in the dream, I'm in like this cave area and there's this woman there. She was hiding and I had this knowing, or I heard that guy say that he was going to come for her and put her back into the ground where she belonged. And here's how I knew her name. We both saw in the grain of the wood an L and we have like this knowing we looked at each other, you know, silly dreams, you know, and we're like, oh, that's yep, great. That's the sign Lilith. And I straight up left my husband that I just married and I went with her to hide her. It was the most interesting dream. <laughs> well, Lamed in Hebrew. Lamed, the letter Lamed, look into that one. It is the only one that goes all the way from the heavens to the earth in the Hebrew alphabet. It goes, all, it's the highest letter and connects to the baseline. And it's similar to Avav in the sense that it's a connector symbolically. It's related okay. to the word learning and teaching Lamed. in the number 30, the Lamed. And that's the first letter of Lilith. So you might want to check that out. Or there's a part of me, I'm just like, Shanna, can you write a story or a book about Lilith and about how she was lost and the only way she was given as a gift was by like a patriarchal figure that the earliest records to my knowledge that we have of her were from the male rabbi teachings about her being evil and a demon. But maybe there's an older teaching there that could be imagined at least, you know what I mean? Or dreamt of. But just to say there's Lilith in the sense of, I don't know. That she was freed from her demons. Even though the oldest Jewish legends are of her being a demon. Yeah, right. Yeah. That the reclaiming of her, really, there's something else there. And maybe there's someone who's listening to this who says, oh, I've read other sources and I can find older teachings of Lilith or whatever. But to yeah. my knowledge, it's been a reclaiming of an imagined Lilith from the ancient world. Wow. And, and I, again, I don't want to put too much on your plate, but it, like there's some way, or maybe someone listening, is there a way in which Lilith could be described in a legendary form, like the legend of Lilith? Maybe it was then robbed of that in this like false gift kind of way you're describing. Like he didn't really trust the man giving the gift. You know? Yeah, well, when <laughs> like, I had to search for understanding of Lilith, because I didn't know, Zohar was the first thing that I found. There's yeah. not a lot of anything on Lilith. In fact, Midrash. the Christians don't speak whatsoever of Lilith. Because it's a Jewish, a Jewish legend. She doesn't exist in the Christian world until quite recently, to my knowledge. That but the Midrash is where Jewish... she's articulated. It's like Jesus rabbinic was... teachings. Yeah, but Jesus preceded Midrash. Okay. Like the Midrash are the stories that the, the rabbis tell. And they're legends that may well have developed after Jesus. Wow. Right? In the same sense that different things evolve. Like Jesus lived at the time when the temple still stood. The rabbis did not become a thing, right? He's called rabbi once, I believe, in the book of John, perhaps, but that means my teacher. He wasn't a rabbi in the formal sense of someone in the lineage of rabbis. You know what I'm saying? He did not okay. possibly know about that, right? And nor did the people around him. That legend may have come later. So was in the story that you've been told of Lilith, she yeah, was Adam's first wife and she didn't want to be laid down or something like that or... So if you read the literal reading, again, in Hebrew, which is often not translated because it's right. so strange, the literal reading is the first chapter of the Bible. It's almost like, oh, this is what the academics are saying today. It's up for grabs, but yeah. that's a different creation story than the, yeah. than the Adam and Eve story. The first chapter is, it just sounds like the creator deity, <laughs> Elohim, mm -hmm. creates all humanity. And then it doesn't say Adam. It just says male and female, mm -hmm. he created them. 
male and female, he created them. Okay. And then the second chapter, starting in verse four or five, it begins the story, which it's actually, if you read it independently, is a different creation narrative that is arguably from a different like subsect of ancient Israelite culture. That's the theory. And it is a different name of God. It says okay. Adonai Elohim. It's a different name of God there. And so Adam and Eve are then described. Mm -hmm. And so commentators have the task of saying, why are these two things kind of different? Why is it say Adam is created and then Eve is created from Adam's rib? Or mm -hmm. you could also translate it as Adam's side. So some brilliant uh, drasher comes along and says, this is the same story, but the first created being mm -hmm. was a male-female blend. Male yes, and, and that was the original Adam. And then when Eve was split off, that was actually the side of Adam. It wasn't the rib. It was literally this sort of like dual gendered being. I've heard clone. Split in two, <laughs> like conjoined twins also. In, in any case, somewhere in there, there's, oh, now I've given you this whole story, which I love. And I'm like, where does Lilith fit in? I've heard that Lilith was like the initial like, mate. And then Eve comes later. She's not mentioned, but again, she's- yeah. Lilith is, appears probably as a in the book of Isaiah, but it means a different, it's like the word Lilith is there, but it probably means something else. It was from that one line in the book of Isaiah that the early commentary on this, the early storytellers take that one line and then they combine it with this story as it's literally written in Adam and Eve. And I believe that's how Lilith comes to being. But Lilith probably in the book of Isaiah had another meaning around, it was some kind of animal perhaps, or a plant, or there's some other word yeah. that it used to mean and it becomes this core kernel for this whole story a midrash it's called that 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 the rabbis tell to explain these elements and share wisdom in their perspectives of what what else is happening under the surface and her consort sometimes is known as being samael yeah, yeah. Samuel. that's in the zohar samael which means god's yeah. poison arguably or just it's samael's and kind of the devil Maybe. The, uh, yeah, but in Judaism, generally the, under, generally, the understanding is everything comes from God, the light and the dark. Like Isaiah says, God forms light and creates darkness, makes mm -hmm. peace and creates evil. Mm -hmm. Like everything's from God. And that's a very common theology, including in a lot of Kabbalah. And so Samael is an angel. But if Lilith is the dark side mm -hmm. right, of Shekhinah, Samael is the dark side of Tiferet the dark side of the Holy Blessed One. So in Kabbalah, the central axis of Tiferet is the mate of Shekhinah, the heavens and the earth they're called. And in the subversive universe, like the dark tree of life, if you will, or the underworld, demonic really is how it's described. Samael is the dark king of that, you know, the central masculine element of Tiferet, the central axis, wow. and his mate is Lilith. And there's other demons too, and demonesses, and there's like wow. a whole... So that's one of the ways they're articulated. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, I wasn't even going to bring it up until I don't know how Lilith came out. Another weird thing was there was this one time Mandy and I, when she was podcasting with me, we had on Catherine Hargraves and we played this game that she made. It was cards and we had to give each other all a name. We had to like, it was just like, you know, let's focus on a name and see what we came up with. And she came up with for me, Lily Bear which was just silly, you know, Lily Bear. So I looked up Lily and it was, what was interesting is Shanna, even that you spoke of um, different versions of that, but yeah. Shanna means Lily or something like that. And I was like, wait, what? That's so weird. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's called, yeah, we can do reclaiming. 
that's part of Drash is looking at old characters and reclaiming them. Like the way you were talked about Lilith amongst all these other goddess figures, that's a reclamation for the sake of the divine feminine. Despite all this demon talk we're having, like I'm really supportive of that kind of thinking mm-hmm. that every era we can look back and say, well, this character was in the shadows, I but like guess that. what? They don't have to be, right? Like mm-hmm. there's different eras of Judaism in which the men valorize different figures. Yeah, they used to be religious heroes and then they became sort of everyday good people or warrior heroes or like there's different, the the mythology. I mean, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a Frodo Baggins kind of guy, but like apparently Tolkien really liked Sam Ganji, right? And like the movie really cherished Aragorn, but I love Gandalf. And you know, it's like, how do these, and in every era we can actually look back and we can reclaim and relate to people anew. Serach Bat Asher was this forgotten kind of, bigger from the Bible, one of the grandchildren of Jacob, the patriarch. And in the Midrash, I didn't learn about this until recently. Sarah Barashir is a Jewish immortal. She never dies. And I had only heard that there was like Elijah, the prophet who never died. Elijah is this immortal who never dies in the Bible. But Sarah Barashir is mentioned in several generations. And then in the legends of the rabbis, and she is this wisdom keeper across many generations. You know, she's badass. The ever unfolding and the massive library just in my own tradition allows this whole thing to move forward because we can uncover, right? Reveal hidden names of God, so to speak, hidden texts, hidden wisdom. And if we include archaeology and and history, like this is how it moves forward. And maybe to go back again, that's why I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because I haven't (laughs) even learned what the bathwater is yet. You know, like it's there's so much there. And yeah. once I, once I learn everything, then I could decide, uh, you know, <laughs> what the next step is, or at least. Yeah. When you finally get to the top of the tree, you're done. Yeah, exactly. I'll just disappear. So thank okay. you so yes, much. Absolutely. Matthew. I thank appreciate you, you returning. Sure. Um, you're full of wisdom. You've just like connected so many dots for me today. I can't wait to share right. this and even listening to it again. So for sure. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it, Shanna. And I'm inspired by your seeking also, and you're just, I feel like opening up to so many things and, you know, may it continue. May you continue to be an inspiration for others around you. Oh, thank you so much. And anytime you want to come back on, if you have anything new, let me know. In fact, tell everybody what you have going on, where they might be able to join you on some of your classes, retreat and find your book. Absolutely. So uh, MatthewPonak.com is the best place to learn all about my offerings. I have a lot of courses every month. Starting in July, I'm teaching an online course looking at Lurianic Kabbalah, which is a beautiful system that comes from the 16th century. And we're looking at that. We're doing meditation, facilitated learning, and it's eight weeks. I'm co-facilitating it with a somatic spiritual counselor. So, And then we're going to be meeting on Vancouver Island over Labor Day weekend for three full days, I believe. Uh, or at least four and two of those are full days and we're going to go deeper and we're learning divine names there and and studying and connecting and more practice and it's body centered. It's really about reclaiming people who have Jewish ancestry, especially I'm encouraging to check this out because learning our ancestral wisdom languages are tremendously important and powerful for helping us reclaim who we are at our most fundamental level. And I would, and I mean, your book, I would say, literally, it says for all 
on the front of it. And I really, truly a hundred percent got that from it. And I thought it was, it's awesome. It's an easy read for something that is very difficult. Usually if you were just to go on your own to try to explore this, it is very difficult. I tried, knocked my head against the wall. So this was awesome. All of my offerings are open to all people. Just to say, if someone is just has a yearning for Jewish wisdom, they can come on their retreat for sure. But I want to give a special nod around connecting to ancestry. But as anyone is welcome. And uh, we we teach explicitly to all people because this is the age we're in. We're all in this together and we need to be collaborating and helping each other as much as we can to learn and grow and help our world get a little bit better. Yay. All right. Well, thank you. I'm sorry I kept you so long. I appreciate no every minute. Pleasure is okay. all mine. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Sense of Soul podcast. And thanks to our special guests for joining me. If you want more of Sense of Soul, check out my website at www.mysenseofsoul.com where you can work with me one-on-one or help support Sense of Soul podcast by donating to my coffee fund. Thanks for listening.